The text for the sermon this day is taken from Daniel chapter 7, specifically these words. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. And he shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. This is the text. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There is that word in that text, that word saints. A very fitting word because last week was All Saints Day. We commemorated all who have passed on in the faith, all those who have died a Christian. But here's the thing, there's this belief that in order to become a saint, you must do something great. You must be perfect. You must be an incredible person in history. But when in reality, all, you ha- all that needs to be done to be a saint is to come to faith in Christ. All those who believe in Christ are saints. They are Actually, in Daniel, a better translation is holy ones. You are the ones that are holy, set apart by God for salvation, for redemption, for eternity. In this life, we are actually, the word that Luther likes to use, or the the phrase that was used by Luther, was simul ustis et peccator, which is Latin for simultaneously just and sinner, or simultaneously saint and sinner. So we are the holy ones. We are the saints. And every now and then, as saints, as Christians, people will come up to you and ask, Why, how do I trust the Bible? How can I believe in it? We live in a day and age where we have learned not to trust authorities. My generation in particular, and the generation that is coming after me, they don't trust the authority. We have learned not to trust even the news. Take just this week with what has happened with Ben Carson and Politico. If you've been paying attention to the news, they ran a false story and they admitted to it. So we've learned in our life not to trust the supposed authorities. And so people wonder, how can I trust the Bible? Well, here's the, there's two answers. There's a couple answers for this. The first go-to answer, I would say, is this. Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, rose from the dead. And there's plenty of evidence to support this. Even Anthony Flew, who was a prominent atheist up until his death, admitted that there is solid evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. He didn't accept it. He didn't accept the evidence as being true, but he, believed, he admitted it was there. So, and I'm not going to go into all that evidence. That's a sermon for another day. But the evidence is there. And Given the fact, by the way, do you know how many books there are in the world that strongly testify to the risen Jesus? 
The common answer people will give is one. But the New Testament is not one book. The Bible is not one book. It is 66 books. The New Testament is 27 books. That means there are 27 books strongly testifying to that Jesus rose from the dead. So, given the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, and he said that the, the Old Testament is God's word, I'm going to listen to the guy that rose from the dead. He might know a thing or two. But even beyond that, there's a second answer. Look at, you could go to Psalm 22, which, by the way, it is in our hymnal if you wanted to look at it. But Psalm 22, you have this incredible detail about a man being crucified. Which is remarkable, because David is the one that's writing it. But David was never crucified. In fact, crucifixion would not exist for another 400 years after he wrote that psalm. Quite remarkable that in the Bible something is written, that there is a writing about something that would not exist for 400 years. Another thing you could do, pull out Isaiah 52, verse 13, and go to the end of the ver chapter 53. And somebody asks you, can I trust the Old Testament? You just read the, read a section of the Bible, this section, and you read it to them, and ask, don't tell them where you're reading it from, just read it. And when you get done, say to them, who is this, ver who are these verses about? And very likely they'll say, oh, it's about Jesus. And then you can explain to them that it was written 600 years before Jesus was even born. And then you have texts like this in Daniel. An incredible thing that Daniel is foreseeing. A couple weeks ago we read from Daniel chapter 4. Daniel was interpreting a dream of Nebuchadnezzar. That Nebuchadnezzar dreamed that there were four kingdoms. And Daniel explained that the first kingdom was, the king was, his own, was Babylon. And he said that the second kingdom would be a kingdom that would be the, is, a, is a kingdom that would conquer Babylon. And he explained there would be a third and there would be a fourth. And here again, that vision comes. It comes to Daniel. But there's difference. There's a variation in the vision. We learn in history, and this is kind of interesting to look at in retrospect, because a lot of what Daniel is talking about is things that did not happen in his lifetime. But we, and it's actually kind of the reason why people like to start dating Daniel all the way to like um, 100 BC and say, oh, it's a really late book, so that's why it's getting all these things right. And then the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and it was too old to justify that dating. But anyways... Daniel sees these visions of these kingdoms. The first kingdom like, is still Babylon, which this would be old news. It'd be like us talking about Nazi Germany. It happened in our past and it's fallen. 
Then there was the second one, the Persian Empire. That would be like us reading something about the United States. It's the empire that's going right now. And then there's the third kingdom. And that was the kingdom of the Greeks. Have you ever heard of Alexander the Great? And him marching across Asia, marching across much of the world? That's the third kingdom. And then the fourth kingdom is the Roman Empire. Now there's something kind of, and this is where it's just an amazing prophecy. Because there's something unique about the Roman Empire. Do you know how, how the, Babylonian Empire, the Babylonian kingdom came to an end? It was conquered. Do you know how the Persian kingdom was, was ended? It was conquered. Do you know how the Greek empire was, was, came to an end? It was conquered. Do you know how the Roman empire came to an end? It collapsed. Nobody had to conquer the Roman Empire. It was a mess. It was a disaster. In fact, most historians don't debate about why the Roman Empire fell. They debate about why it lasted as long as it did. Because there were so many incompetent emperors. And out of that empire came a multitude of kingdoms. Hence, the ten horns coming out of this fourth beast. These are the many kingdoms that resulted from the Roman Empire. And amongst those ten horns, there is another one that arises out of it. A smaller one. And it's a king, it's representing that a king that is different. He speaks in a way that the others don't. He has a different kind of authority. And he speaks words against the most most high. He wears out the saints of the most high. See, most of the history of the church has come to believe that Daniel was foreseeing the Antichrist. And if you were to read of the reformers, they believed the Antichrist was a specific office, a specific authority. And that is the Pope. Because you can look, there's a, it's, there's a painting from many, many years ago. It's a painting of Charlemagne, of his coronation as king. And when Charlemagne was, was made king, you could see the picture of him on his knees, bowing before the Pope. Just as those three horns, those representing the other three kings, bowed to this unique horn. And just like this horn who spoke words against the Most High, the Pope set his authority on the same level as the Scriptures, even setting it against it. He would say that you cannot interpret the Bible. You're too stupid to do that. Only the Pope can interpret the Bible. That was the ruling of the time of the Reformation. And to some degree, this still holds true in the Catholic Church. 
He wore out the saints of the Most High because he told people that they had to purchase indulgences. They had to do all sorts of, all sorts of things in order to inherit eternity. You had to be good enough. And eventually, God's people, God's chosen holy ones, His children, His saints, they were worn out. They could not keep up with God's law. That was, the, that, was that small horn in the time of Luther. But the thing is that the Antichrist changes. At one point it was the Pope, or the, not individual Popes, but the office itself of the Pope. Today, there's some truth to that still, but today it could be any teaching that is false. Any teaching that sets you against the words of the Most High. It could be liberal theology. Liberal Christianity that runs rampant in this country. The Christianity that tells you that the Bible is not entirely God's Word. They'll say it contains God's Word. Or as I've heard at, a, I've heard at sermons at one of these churches, where they'll say that God did not come, that Jesus is not, they didn't say that Jesus is the way, They'd say that Jesus came to show the way. They wouldn't say that God came to forgive your sins, but God came to assure your forgiveness. Do you know the difference? The difference is assurance means Jesus did not die for your sins. He just died to be a good example. What it also means is that Christianity is not the only way to salvation, You can believe in anybody. It all leads to heaven. And there will be people that will tell you that if we would just be more liberal, if we would be more accepting, more loose, as other Lutheran bodies are, accept things like homosexuality, our churches would flourish, would be huge. If that were the case then I'd have to ask why that particular Lutheran church body and the other, Lutheran ch- the other liberal churches are the fastest shrinking churches in the country. Do you know why they're shrinking? It's because you spend long enough telling people that God's word doesn't matter, that things don't matter. Eventually they'll say, why does any of this matter? That is why... why atheists are growing in rapid rate out of the liberal churches. But beyond even liberalism, we have the challenges of those, the prosperity gospel. People who could fill up churches to the brim can fill up entire basketball arenas for their church services. And they sell books that are titled your best life now. Teaching, or the most recent book I was told this morning, it's called I Am. In other words, that I am beautiful and I am, I am talented, things like that. Which is written by a guy named Joel Osteen, which 
Actually, when somebody told me the book, all I thought right away was, I am beautiful enough, I'm smart enough, I'm talented enough, and doggone it, people like me. Stuart Smalley, if anybody know, remembers that from Saturday Night Live. But if you ever read a book and the title of the book is My Best Life Now, that should raise alarms because guess what? Your best life is not now. Your best life is in the life of the world to come. In fact, in this world, you will face suffering. If you are a Christian, if you are strong in your faith, you will suffer. It is promised by the gospel, promised by Christ, that we will suffer just as he did. There's a common teaching. There was a couple years ago, Christian A. Smith, who was a, a professor at the University of Notre Dame, did a survey of the religious, um, the religious viewpoint of, of Christian teenagers in America. And what he found was that the average teenager was a moralistic, therapeutic deist. That is... That God teaches you how to be a good person. And of course, you get to choose what you consider to be a good person. Choose your own morals. He's therapeutic. He makes you feel good about yourself. And he's a deist, deism in that he does not get overly involved in your life. In other words, he's the divine butler or the cosmic therapist. Always on call. Just ring your bell and God will come and help you. Ring your bell and he will leave. That is, the, that is the God of most Christian teenagers. And by the way, you want to know where they got that God from? Mom and dad. Their parents. And by the way, this is across denominations. Luther, even amongst Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. That is the common worldview about who God is. And yet, you have things like Daniel... Where after he sees God, because you know what we just read? There's a scene that happens before it, but we're not going to get to that until, I think, two weeks from now. Where he saw Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, and he saw God the Father in their glory. And when he saw them, it says that he was greatly alarmed and his, my color changed. Meaning, he was terrified, so afraid that he became pale. That was his reaction in the sight of God. He's not our, he's not our butler, butler. He's not our apple God, as Luther would refer to it. Even going farther, in American Christianity, there's the problem of what is called Christian nihilism. Raise your hand if you know who Friedrich Nietzsche is. Nobody knows him. Ah, nobody knows who Friedrich Nietzsche is. Okay, raise your hand if you've ever heard of his most famous quote, God is dead. And even, raise your hand if you've heard that quote. When Nietzsche wrote that quote, he was, he was this was back in the 1800s, and by the way, Nietzsche was a very, very influential guy. 
Nazi Germany is largely based on his ideas. And his ideas are still rampant in our own culture. But he looked around Europe. He looked at all the Christians. He looked at the way they were living, the way they were talking. And he just said to them, he looked at them and he said, you know, you believe, you say there is a God, but you act and talk like he doesn't exist. So why don't you just admit it? God is dead. You have killed him. Now, a couple of years ago, and there's a sequel to this movie coming out, there's a movie called God is Not Dead. And that movie is responding to Friedrich Nietzsche's quote. The irony of the film is the film verifies Nietzsche's quote. Because it supports Friedrich Nietzsche. Because when people would ask the characters, do you believe God is dead? He goes, no, to me... God is as alive as you and me. To me, God is real. To me, to me. Do you know the problem when you start with to me? Makes your God meaningless. Makes your God a matter of personal opinion. It makes your God on the level of your favorite flavor of ice cream. That is the problem with subjective religion. Subjective Christianity. Yes, we could talk about our experiences of our faith, and that could be subjective. But when people ask you, is God real? Is Jesus who he said he is? Your answer should never, ever be subjective. It needs to be objective. Concrete. Go to the history. Go to the sources. There's a very popular, very smart theologian who talked about this problem. And by the way, this problem of nihilistic Christianity is not just a Lutheran problem. It's a problem for the Reform. It's a problem for the Baptists. It's a problem for pretty much every denomination. And they're, they are, many of them are preaching about the exact same thing I am. That... The problem is, when we treat religion, it's kind of like a shopping mall. You go into the mall, and you look around, and you see all the stores. And you look over, and there's, there's the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod store. Um, there's the ELCA store. There's the Reform. There's the Baptist. There's a Catholic one. Um, there's a, there's a uh, Buddhist one. There's a Muslim store. And the one that you go to is just about what... You, you, go, you see one and it's got really nice display. It's got pretty music. And it, it's got good smells and all that stuff. And so that's the one you go to just based on your decision. That is the way American religion is. It's like consumerism. We go to what fits our desires, fits our wants. And so what do churches like to do? They turn into McChurch. Again, another theologian used that wonderful term. Like McDonald's, they want to satisfy their customers. Church becomes all about you. And guess what? When it becomes all about you, guess who God is? You. That is American Christianity. But the reality as you look into the scriptures, you look at this text by Daniel, he is living under the reign of a real emperor, 
a real person. The Persian Empire. He talks about kingdoms that really stood and really fell. He is predicting these things that happen and are still being fulfilled to this very day. Daniel in his his text prophesies to the coming of Jesus. And Jesus was born of a real woman. Born of Mary. And Mary has other children. Which means that it's very much possible that somewhere in this world, somebody carries the same DNA as Jesus. Humbling fact, isn't it? Humbling thought. Because they shared, because their ancestor is the mother of Christ. There's a reality that he was, he was born of an actual woman. He lived under the reign of Herod during the time of Caesar Augustus. You can read the writings of Cicero and Tacitus and read about how these people really exist. You can read the writings of Josephus about the life of Christ, that he was truly crucified under Pontius Pilate, the Roman pontiff. You can read about how Jesus actually walked on this soil, not on in Iowa, but on this actual soil, on actual ground, on actual earth, that he was sentenced to death. You could read about his actual flesh and blood brother James, of how he was killed. You could read about how Jesus was actually suffered death by a cross, a real form of death, that there's plenty of evidence that people were crucified. All of these things happened in history, in reality. When people ask you, is God alive? Or is God dead? Your answer should be, no, actually Jesus Christ, uh, I could pull out, you could pull out your Bible and see this guy named Jesus. He is God in the flesh. He was crucified and he rose from the dead. And so yes, God was dead for three days, but he's alive now. He's risen. Guess what? That's not subjective. You're pointing to a historic, actual event. And when it's historic, when it's actual, and the fact that Jesus died not just for you, not just for me, not just for the people in this sanctuary, not just for the people in Iowa or the United States, but for every person that is ever taking a, taking a breath of air, Jesus died for one forgiveness, one salvation. And the thing that Paul said, how are they to know of this salvation? How are they to receive it if they have not heard? That is why you are here on this earth. As God's holy ones, as his saints, even in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of false teaching. You notice if you read the New Testament, it is far more concerned with false teaching than anything else. It is more concerned with what is going on in the church than what is going on with false religions. Luther was more concerned with what's going on under the papacy than he was concerned about the Muslim. How many of you are more concerned about 
Islam, then you're concerned about those who teach that baptism does not save. The, the Bible, the history of the church, disagrees with that priority. The greatest threat is in the church. And that's why we learn God's word. We hear it. We are here to stand as a defense, as an army, to stand for the truth of the gospel. May we do it until Christ returns. In Jesus' name, amen. The grace, peace, and mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, keep in the one true faith, the life everlasting. Amen. Please stand. We confess our common faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated as we continue with the gathering of our offering.